Hello, Kirsty Melville with you for a special episode of the History Listen, reflecting on the passing of Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II. Daniel Browning talks to historian Jane Connors and editor of the Australian Women's Weekly, Juliet Reardon, about the relationship Australians had with the Queen. Well, I think it was absolutely extraordinary for Australia because it was the first time that we had seen a reigning monarch. To the shores of this, her southern realm, the royal barge bears Elizabeth II. And it wasn't just a reigning monarch, it was this beautiful, beautiful former princess who is now our queen. By the grace of God, of the United Kingdom, Australia and her other realms and territories, Queen. Uh, She was 27 years old. We'd seen her in pictures. Now three quarters of the population turned out onto the streets of Australia to see her in person. Head of the Commonwealth, defender of the faith. The young Queen Elizabeth II arriving on our shores for the first time. From the Queen in Australia the first full-colour feature-length film produced in this country, which gives you an idea of the significance of the event. They speak for nine million people spread across six states. Hello, I'm Daniel Browning, and on this solemn occasion, we look back over the long reign of Queen Elizabeth II through the prism of Her Late Majesty's first defining visit to Australia, the Royal Tour, of 1954. For Victoria, where channel and dam and sluice have wrested increase from the tawny soil. I think it was the biggest single event in Australian history. For boundless Western Australia, where the axis sounds through the towering Cary forests. When you look at the Beatles, for example, you know, the, you know, we make a huge fuss about when the Beatles came to Australia in 64. The crowds were nothing, nothing compared to the Queen. The attention the royal family has attracted in this country might be embarrassing for some people, might be difficult to comprehend, but you cannot deny it. To this ancient continent, to this youthful nation, they bid their sovereign and her husband welcome. Jane Connors is a historian, fellow broadcaster, and now editorial advisor at the ABC. Jane has been researching the meaning of the royal family in Australia for 30 years now, and she's the author of the book, Royal Visits to Australia. Queen travelled to 70 country towns and all capital cities bar Darwin. So it was a cumulative event, it wasn't a single day, but there's been nothing like it in terms of attendance. There were roughly 9 million people living in Australia at the time and, you know, to the best of anyone's guess, looking at police estimates, crowd sizes, uh, official estimates at the time, probably about 7 million people got themselves in front of the Queen. And many of them did it multiple times. You know, there was a bit of a thing of how many times have you seen the Queen. The excitement of the time with a royal car only a few hundred yards away on its way down the street produced some curious vocal effects when I spoke to people, like this one. Have the ABC, how do you feel about today right now? I'm having a lovely time. It's a real thrill. 
been waiting for for years and years. How many years exactly? <laughs> She was just stunning, wore amazing clothes. We got the, we got the full, full works, we got tiaras, we got the coronation dress. She was wearing those gloves that the women here at the time wore and hats and everyone knew that, you know, this is our queen. We, we've dressed a little bit like her and now we know it's okay to do so because she's here showing us all of that. Juliet Reedon is the editor of the Australian Women's Weekly and the author of The Royals in Australia. As the Weekly's royal correspondent, she's had the opportunity to reflect on Australia's enduring and particular relationship with the late Queen. I think we, we've grown up with her. Certainly the readers of The Weekly have followed her since she was born. And I think the Australian people have followed her since then. They saw her in that 1954 tour for the first time and then continued to see her and continued to watch her grow, watch her grow in confidence, watch her grow around the world in her importance. When we think of the Queen, we think of her immense service, her sense of duty, of honour, her diligence to the job. It was an incredible job in which she evolved the monarchy in her time, and I think people forget that. Back in 1954, before our contemporary confusion of royalty and celebrity, there's no doubt that the young queen brought a special kind of glamour to our shores. The royal yacht entering the great public space of Sydney Harbour was an unprecedented spectacle. And two years before the introduction of television, the possibility of seeing the young queen in person proved irresistible to the majority of the population. The people took days and weeks off work to follow the tour in, in the city or state that they lived in, made monumental journeys, you know, travelled hundreds of miles to see her, enormously difficult round trips, crossed flooded rivers to see her with their luggage on their heads. Um, you know, indigenous children were taken from Murren Bridge to Adelaide. Never has there been such a movement of people. So when she was in Adelaide, for example, every single piece of rolling stock in South Australia, every train carriage was occupied with getting people from the farthest corners of South Australia to Adelaide for the three or four days she was there. So the public expenditure, the, the committees, the paperwork for the committees, she went to Mount Gambia for an hour and three quarters and 12 committees met for a year and a half to determine the details. The, the committee work for the day she arrived in Sydney Harbour was just extraordinary. Schools drilled for months, you know, every day. Kids who in the end would just stand in the hot sun to watch her flashing by would nonetheless do rehearsals, uh, sometimes with the headmistress pretending to be the Queen so they would know how to behave in front of her. So they marched just out onto the showground in Cairns, so called Parramatta Park and the Royal Party came in in the Land Rover which had been flown up from Townsville the day before. I can still see her to this day, she had a cool floral dress on with a little hat and she looked so cool compared to the rest of us who had been sitting in the hot sun for an hour or so waiting for her to arrive. And then someone blew a whistle and we all sat down and we all bent over so that the words Elizabeth II were formed. 
and there was uh, applause and somebody blew another whistle and we all stood up and then they blew a whistle again and we sat down and that was uh, the, the total sum of our, uh, of our performance. I think there were two factors to the extraordinary uh, attention to the Queen at that time and one of them in a way is fairly straightforward which was that we'd been waiting for a tour from a monarch for so very long. So there'd been this tremendous build-up and a feeling that our turn would need to come. And, and I think that was important to people with this idea that, you know, there'd been the great experiment of the colony at the end of the world and that white colonists had come and turned this black wilderness into a modern nation and we needed the reigning monarch of Britain to come and see that for themselves and in a way to validate it and tick off on it and, uh, you know, deem it to be the success that white Australia saw itself to be. And the other thing I think very strongly was the Second World War. Hostilities will end officially at one minute after midnight tonight that even though it seems now that 1954 was a long way from the end of the war, it wasn't at the time at all. Like we'd really only just come out of rationing and, you know, we were still settling returned servicemen back into uh, civilian life. And the war had been such a profoundly disturbing and dangerous event that there were still you know, emotional scars, I think, not only for individuals but for the nation as a whole. And the royal family, had to have them come and say thank you, seemed to be extraordinarily important to acknowledge the losses that Australia had suffered and Australian servicemen and Australian families had suffered. So these, these factors, I think, coalesced. And then I guess the third strand was just that the Queen was so famous, you know, from a little girl. She had been the most photographed child, teenager, young woman, young mother in the world. You know, everybody had been given booklets of photos of the Queen and Princess Margaret for Christmas and birthdays. They'd grown up with her. Uh, people measured the age of their children by the age of her children. People were named after her. So everything coalesced into this extraordinary moment when she finally arrived. of the morning sun steams the royal liner Gothic. Out of the Tasman Sea into the majesty of Sydney Harbour. The first ship ever to pass between the heads flying the royal standard. See, it was such an event. It was almost like a scene out of Gilbert and Sullivan, triumphal arches erected, you know, <laughs> fireworks on the Grand Canal. All over Sydney there were these magnificent arches and the whole place was decorated out. I'd followed her all my life, from the time she was a small child, and I was a small child, through her schooling years and then during the war, and when she was engaged and would she marry Prince Philip or not, and of course she did, and uh, then when Prince Charles was born and the lunchtime placards had, it's a boy. And <laughs> now she was the Queen and I was actually seeing her. It was unbelievable. And then the moment to remember. And I think the most spontaneous expression of enthusiasm I've ever collected on tape. She was about 30, standing on a fruit box, with her mother, I think, and other relatives around her. 
As the royal car approached, I stationed myself just behind her and held the microphone just behind her head. She never knew that her yells of joy were recorded for this program. But in her own way, she voiced the feelings of all of us on that morning. The 1954 Royal Tour was never equalled in scale and significance. Nonetheless, it set the tone for the many Royal Tours of Australia that were to follow. Juliet Reedon. When the Queen was on our shores, she was our Queen. She was the Queen of Australia. And that really is how she felt and how other members of the Royal Family feel when they're here. They do have this very special connection with Australia. The Queen visited 16 times throughout her reign. Her family have visited many, many, many more times. Her husband visited even more times than that. He visited privately a lot of the time. They have very close connections with this country and hold it very dear. In Buckingham Palace, there's this amazing collection of Australian art, which includes a collection of Aboriginal art, which has been gathered by the Duke of Edinburgh himself, which he has bought personally for the Queen, many for birthday gifts. You know, not many people know that. They don't shout about it, but it is part of who they are. Australia is part of their realm and it matters to them. If I could characterise the relationship that I see between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, towards the late Queen, being Aboriginal myself, I've often kind of speculated on on why there is a respect for um, someone who represents an institution which many of us would find it very difficult to accept. So... How do you account for what you've described as a reverence? I mean, I would, I would characterise it more as respect, but how would you characterise that relationship? I think it's, it's very interesting, the relationship, because I had expected the opposite reaction and I had expected more of a, maybe even as strong as a, a sense of anger and a sense of disenfranchising, you know, disenfranchisement. Or hostility, at least. Uh, and hostility. But... I think a lot of it is to do with this queen in particular. I think it's all about this queen. This queen was the first royal to ensure that she always made a visit to Aboriginal communities when she came over every single tour. She also received many delegations at Buckingham Palace throughout her time as Queen. And I think that the Aboriginal elders and academics, and even going further than that, artists, thinkers, all thought that they could go and present themselves to the Queen and discuss what was happening one elder to another in a way that they had no access to their politicians, no access whatsoever. Not only did the Queen visit, but she would then send her family to visit. So on a couple of tours, I met people whose mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers had met all the generations of the royal family. And here they were meeting the latest one who they possibly had seen as a baby. So that sense of continuity and special connection, I think is very much at the heart of it. Stand on my feet. 
particular recollection of the 54 visit, they came along and we all clapped and cheered. And I became aware of a little old chap standing beside me. He turned out to be uh, a new Australian. And uh, he, he was very emotional. Tears were streaming down his face. And he, he turned to me and, and uh, without any sort of introduction, he, in, in a heavy European accent, choked with emotion. He said something to the effect that uh, I, I am Australian now and she is my queen too. And he could hardly speak for the emotion. And I thought, what a wonderful reaction that was. Very correct and proper, I thought, in uh, a new Australian. And I've cherished that thought ever since, to think that uh, this old fellow, uh, heaven knows what he'd been through in the war and all this sort of thing. He'd come out here to a new land and he'd seen fit to become an Australian and to adopt our royal family as his own and I was very touched by that. There does seem to be a sense that, that royalty and the admiration of royalty is somehow women's business. But from what you know, from what you've observed and your research, is that objectively true? No, can I, I blokes have always fallen at the feet of the Queen just as enthusiastically as women have done. In the 1960s, when we had our revival of a Republican movement, it was a strong theme that it was the snobbishness of women which had dragged Australia into this embarrassing relationship with the royal family. And I just think that's an absolute slander on, on women. Uh, because when you look at the photos from any royal tour, I think there probably are slightly more women in the crowds, but there is no shortage of men. And when you look up on the dais of any royal event, they're all men. The organisation was all done by men. When I looked into the files to do with the organisation of 54, I found passionate correspondence from men uh, about whether their town had been bypassed on the itinerary or whether their own children had got invitations to royal events. And the there were articles about uh, that were more uh, tailored towards men, like how many miles will the royal car travel and uh, the mechanics of the royal aeroplanes and the royal yachts and the idea that that's what men would be more interested in. Great deal of interest in Prince Philip, of course, and his role as a man by the side of the Queen. But the biggest emotional events of the royal tour involved men because they were about the return servicemen. So there were many visits in 1954 to repatriation hospitals where many men who'd been you know, severely injured in the war still lay languishing, recovering, or had had relapses. And many men cried. You know, the Queen would come to their bedside and there were many stories of men who tried to get up and weren't able to because they were so injured and, and then cried when the Queen thanked them for their service. And the big remembrance ceremonies, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney, at the big shrines of remembrance, people just wept openly, again, at the picture of men who had given their all for their country, trying to stand to salute the Queen. And they were the absolutely most emotional moments of the Royal Tour. So I don't think there's... Maybe there was a different form of interest... I think that's been exaggerated, but I, I truly think if we were blaming anyone for that enduring Australian attachment to the monarchy, you couldn't single out either gender. The monarch is the head of our 
armed forces. You know, when they go to fight, it's for king or queen and country. And that is felt very deeply by the forces. I know that. I've spoken to the Australian armed forces as well as the, the British armed forces. And they really do feel that it's elemental in who they are and in how they do their job. It may seem odd to others who don't have a member of the royal family as their patron or as their commander-in-chief, but I think it's a rather wonderful connection. So, Jane, what is the interplay then of, of woman and sovereign in relationship to, to the late Queen, Queen Elizabeth II? It's a tension that evaporated as she aged, partly because the times changed and the women's movement came along and ideas about a woman's role became much broader and also as her own children became older and she was no longer the active parent of very small children. But when she was first came to the throne, she had two small children, Charles and Anne, and, and when she came to Australia on her six-month tour, she left them behind. And that was enormously difficult for the women's magazines and the broader media to reconcile. There had already been a lot of discourse about the role of a woman as sovereign, whether you could be womanly when you were trying to, to lead a nation, even in the symbolic sense. Uh, a lot of interest in Prince Philip and how a, a man, you know, who'd come from military service and was known to be so vigorous and masculine could possibly walk one step behind his wife. And many articles are reassuring us that he may be only the consort, but he wore the pants at home and made all the big private decisions for them. That had to be said because people found it uncomfortable. And then an awful lot of stuff around her role as a mother and how she could be a good mother in terms of the way we saw that in the 1950s and be a good queen. So it, it, was, a, it was a really big issue, actually, about how you could be a queen, a wife and a mother. Now in the nave, Elton John sings Candle in the Wind with new words specially written a few days ago by Bernie Taupin. Goodbye, Rose. These contradictions between the late Queen's public and private roles were severely tested by the death of Princess Diana in 1997. You called out to our country And you whispered to those in pain, now you belong to heaven And the stars spell out your name We've also seen her go through those really tough times. Obviously, Australia adored Diana, Princess of Wales, and they saw how the Queen struggled through those times and then pulled the family back together. How do you think, in retrospect, the late Queen handled the death of Diana, Princess of Wales? I think she would think she handled it well because her first reaction was to look after the boys, was to look after William and Harry, take them away and out of the public glare and let them grieve as a family quietly together, which I think would be any grandmother's response. However, she's not any grandmother and she was the queen, and her people were grieving as much as her family, and they were her family too, and this was the dichotomy that she found herself in. We have all felt those emotions in these last few days. So what I say to you now, as your queen and as a grandmother, 
I say from my heart. First, I want to pay tribute to Diana myself. She was an exceptional and gifted human being. Jane, did you have uh, a sense of the late Queen as a person? In a way I do, because the stories about the late Queen, in a way, were so consistent. So there was never a surprise with, with anyone coming out from a garden party or an encounter and saying, oh, she's so different from what you would think. It was always the dutifulness, uh, the sense of humour, the politeness, the discipline. All of those things were so consistently said. She was a serious little girl who grew up into a serious woman and a serious monarch. So there was something about the Queen which seemed like bright and rock, that she was the same all the way through. But I think the interesting thing about the late Queen was that she was actually fairly silent. There's very little on the record. There was no personal interview ever given. Uh, She took to Twitter in her later years, but you'd have to say it was hardly personal insights or observations. So I think in an era which became increasingly more noisy and in which we increasingly, you know, heard everything that everyone thought about everything, the, the, the relative silence of the Queen, I think, was actually extremely powerful. Uh, her speeches, if you go back over them, I mean, she gave many of them, obviously, but they're very impersonal. So I, I think it's fascinating. We, ha- we have a very consistent projected image of the Queen, but in fact, we don't have a lot from the woman herself that we could ever have drawn on to really understand what she was like. And I think that was part of how she saw the role of the monarch, was to be every woman and then yet to, in a way, to be no no one, you know, not to be too distinctive, not to be too eccentric or obvious. And she, I think, did that brilliantly for her entire life. One word that springs to mind when I think of the late Queen is the word solid, which has a kind of a meaning in, in, in Aboriginal English, something that doesn't go away, uh, that is permanent, but it's also something a bit like deadly. It's like, uh, you're solid. Yes, I think we also have to remember that the Queen never thought she was going to be Queen when she was a young girl. And so she was in this rather idyllic family that was slightly separated from the, the cut and thrust of becoming the monarch. And, you know, her father called them We Four and she played in the garden in their house in Mayfair, which is a stone's throw from the palace, but isn't the palace. And they had a very wonderful, close childhood. And then suddenly it all changed for her and she had to change her life considerably. And I think at that moment was the moment when, you know, reality struck for her, but also she knew she was going to have this heavy, heavy burden on her shoulders and her education changed and she started to have to grow away from her sister, Princess Margaret, because she couldn't be as carefree as her She had this heavy duty that was coming her way. In the end, it came her way a lot sooner than she anticipated as well with the untimely death of her father, which must have cut her so deep. But boy, did she rally so quickly. And I think that was, we saw the sense of who she was there in that moment when she came back from Kenya and immediately started taking the role of monarch on her shoulders. I mean, that was an incredible thing for a 25-year-old to do. Uh, I'm going to see 16 people. I may not look so good tomorrow. (laughs) You may just see I'm pleased I'm early in the morning. (laughs) Somebody asked me, had I been to Africa before? 
which was nice of them to ask. But I did say that I had been everywhere in the Commonwealth in Africa and in other countries in Africa. She also had a great sense of humour and that showed itself at surprising times, usually at receptions when she would be chuckling away with someone and then you'd find out afterwards that it was some joke they were talking about. Often it was about horses, I have to say, very often. But there we go. She doesn't eat them. She's not into carrots, ma'am, no? No, you've never liked carrots. I think her legacy is all about a set of values that comes from a different time, perhaps. They're values of decency, of honesty, of integrity, of honour, of duty. Duty comes to mind a lot. She worked so hard, more than 300 engagements every year. And the fact that she held that family together was incredible uh, through those very turbulent times. And she led the country and also, you know, this country at times. So I think we do think of those those words like duty and integrity, almost old-fashioned family values. I hate to think that they are going with her because they really are values that we do hold dear and we should still be living by. So I hope they're not going with her. So, Jane, on this very sombre occasion, we might remember the passing of the late Queen's ancestor, Queen Victoria, and her passing at the time in 1901 was described as being unimaginable. Now, given the long reign of this Queen, our late Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, could the same be said? I think it will be. I think there will be so few people on the planet who will remember a time when the world's most famous woman was not on that planet with them. So I think that even people who think they don't care, people who'd assume they would never care about the royal family who were dismissive of its role and purpose or actually angry about its endurance into the modern world, are now that she's no longer with us, actually finding themselves quite surprised by a degree of sadness or otherwise inexplicable emotion that is arising simply because she did occupy such a place in in the world's media, in the world's attention, and she is no longer. And and I I think that'll be fascinating to see how many people are surprised by catching themselves in that moment of emotion. Jane Connors, ABC broadcaster, policy advisor and author. And before her, Juliet Reedon, editor of the Australian Women's Weekly, author and royal correspondent. Thanks to them both. I'm Daniel Browning. Thank you for joining us on this solemn occasion, the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Daniel Browning, 
with that special tribute to Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II. It was produced by Lee Redfern and Michelle Rayner. I'm Kirsty Melville, and I'll join you for the next episode of The History Listen. See you then.